0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You know, whatever you think of this particular program, as in this episode of The Minefields, I have no interest in hearing about it on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or... Help me, give me another one. TikTok. Um, just none, no interest. Not only am I not there, if I were there, I wouldn't want to hear about it. You can send me a message by carrier pigeon. That is the way that I would like to engage. And I have a very specific reason for raising that because today we are talking about a question that is very close to my heart. It evokes, hey I think the more fundamentalist urges that dwell within me Scott Stevens is my co-host. will Ali is my name for this edition of The Mind Feed as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Scott, I've been pestering you to do this topic for a very long time, and I feel like we've finally got there, but I can't promise that I'll be well-reasoned or well-behaved throughout.
2: Okay. I don't, I don't mind. I think, it's, I think it's a glorious topic. It didn't take much nudging for me to get here. The one Ooh. fear that I have about yep. this particular topic... There's this expression that I've just never had occasion to use ever since leaving the U.S. My one concern is the topic feels a little bit too much like inside baseball. It's, it's competition between, no. between two sides of the one team. But then the more, I, the more I think about it, I think you're right that it does raise some really, really fundamental questions. And I guess I'm just going to ask our listeners in advance. If it seems a bit in-house initially, I really don't think it is. I think it goes to the heart of what we want from one another, what we expect about the conditions that nurture our common life. And having said all that, I'm actually not sure what I think about this.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, the question we're discussing today is should journalists use social media? You know, as I say that out loud, it's not quite the right topic, is it? No, it's not. It really should be for me, should journalists be on social media? Hmm. Uh, Maybe use is okay. I think we can tease out maybe some of the dimensions of what the appropriate use might be. I will state up front, Scott. Sorry, sorry, let me get some clarity
2: from the outset. Because one of the things about social media, and I do think we need to say from the outset,
1: Mm. you are not on social media in any form. And And I never have been. And you never have been. Except um, Except through groupings that I'm associated with. So like if I've hosted a show... Okay. That show may have been on social media, right? I think we were uh, the minefield was on social media at one we were.
2: point.
1: Yeah, um, I play in a band. That band has a social media page. Oh, so your hands aren't completely clean, my friend. Well, they're dirty to the extent that someone <laughs> grabbed me and threw me into a pit. All right, so so so. <laughs> but that, I'm not I'm not on social media. Okay. Right.
2: So does the fact that part of my condition of employment with the ABC was that for a time, for a period of about four and a half, nearly five years, I had to oh. Run a particular social media account related, uh, connected yeah. to the ABC Religion Ethics website, and for a time I curated the Mindfield social media account, but did not do either wholeheartedly nor particularly gladly. And the second yeah. that I was able to negotiate, not having any relationship with social media of any kind, I have
1: closed them all down and not touched I it didn't since. No, that's what had happened. Yeah. Okay, but I'm not interested in judging your decision there i'm interested more in that case in the ethics of the original contractual requirement
2: okay but 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 hang on just just before you get there yeah one of the things about social media is that it blurs the line between consumer and producer yes so when you're kind of quibbling a bit about the use of the term use it seems to me that that necessitates both so for instance consuming social media hearing what other people have to say, reading social media posts, receiving communications from others on social media, social media being part of one's, let's call it, epistemic engagement with the world versus communicating on social media, promoting one's wares, allowing the particular logic of social media to affect the way or influence the way that you see your own, yeah. one's own journalistic work. It seems to me that I'm not sure how cleanly those two things
1: can be separated from one another. So it seems to me that no. use cover, covers both pretty nicely. Sure, but my problem is that they do have different centers of gravity. Okay. Right? All right. So nice. the idea of using social media in this sort of passive sense that it's part of your epistemic universe, well, that's all actually unavoidable. To the extent, I mean, when Donald Trump tweets, it's world news, for example, or at least it was. It was. um, When he was on Twitter. And And the was was there is really important. I mean, can you believe
2: how much nicer, quite seriously, how much nicer engaging with the news is now that Donald Trump's tweets aren't headline news every day or every second day?
1: Right. But if I'm watching a news report and that's part of the discussion, I suppose I'm using social media in the sense that it is part of my epistemic universe at that point, right? Or if I want to engage in an analysis of why it is that we've seen such a rise in conspiracy theories and perhaps anti-vax sentiment uh, in COVID times, well, social media is an indispensable reference point for that because that's the engine of so much of it. And so it becomes part of my epistemic universe. I'm not Mm, as interested in that.
2: Okay. Okay. I think, I'm
1: interested in the I think question. you're not quite right, by the way, in, in the way you're characterizing that, because I, I, I think there is, there is
2: engagement with social media. For instance, that social media is a thing that is out there. People are doing things, reporting things, saying things, writing things on it. It seems to me that being on social media imposes a particular logic on the way that we think the way that we interact, the things that are important, the things that are urgent. So it seems to me that seeing having social media part of one's epistemic engagement with the world, it's not just that it's a thing that's out there that people are writing things on and as a journalist I need to engage with it. It's that social media imposes a logic on the way that we think on our expectations yes. about ourselves, so I, there, I think, when I say epistemic engagement with the world, I really do think that social media represents a form of knowledge, a structure, a logic of knowledge that it's very, very, very difficult to escape from. But it's, in some respects at least, it's necessary to escape from.
1: Right. Okay. So I'm a bit more comfortable with that formulation. Okay. Because I think that implies a deeper level of engagement than I think the word "use" could imply. Okay. Fair enough. But anyway. I'm interested in this notion that as someone who is not and was never on social media, so I want to make it clear, it's not like I was on it, got tired of it, got off, or I was on it and then had a media career and then decided I better get off it. No, I looked at it from the very start and said, this is a horrible thing and I want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. So I've never had that thing of being part of the social media landscape in the sense that we understand it now. But as someone who then worked in media, what interested me was the imperative to be doing it. So the fact that I didn't do it became a curiosity Mm. and it became a moment, even of mild pressure points, I would say, um, at times, that I really should be. That somehow I was letting my either my show down or you were letting your brand languish (laughs) Walid. Yeah, yeah. Well some of that language brand. (laughs) Some of that language may have been used occasionally in some conversations. But and I, sorry, I don't mean to say my employers were putting pressure on me. That's not true. But I just mean within the industry, yeah, there's course. just this sort of thing of what are you doing? Mm. How could you not be? And my, my response, at least to myself, was always, what do you mean? How could you be? Mm. I, I would surely be betraying everything I'm trying to do by being part of this world, by, by actively participating and choosing to be part of this world. That overwhelmingly what I see from it is that it would infect me. Not that it would assist me to do a better job, mm. so the imperative is one element of it that I think has led me to think about this over a long period of time than we're interested in. but the bigger question that's more important than anything to do with me is whether or not what we see with social media is something that I think is indefensibly distorting of journalistic practice mm. of journalist of the journalistic enterprise and even of the idea of journalism itself and it's perhaps best summed up in this sort of um, aphoristic observation that I don't even know who said it, but it's one of these things that goes around. But I think it brilliantly distills the problem of social media. And that is that social media is a place where celebrities think they're journalists and journalists think they're celebrities. That's quite nice. And I think that points to a, a central problem in that the, the vocation of journalism should not, at least in an ideal setting. And I understand You know, as someone who's the host of a television show on commercial TV, I understand there's a certain irony in this, in me saying this, but it is not something that should be directed towards any kind of celebrity. Certainly not when you're talking about reporting, which then leads to a question really about, well, well, sorry, the next part of the imperative, which is, but it's about engagement. It's about being in touch. It's about... um, cultivating a kind of series of connections with the world. And I can maybe understand that from the point of view of a producer who wants to try to find someone to interview in the middle of Syria. And this allows a quick way for them to scan and get in touch and so on. But it's the notion of in-touchedness that I'm interested in here. Because the question that arises immediately for me is in touch with what? Mm-hmm. Because it presupposes that the thing that you are in touch with via social media represents some kind of grassroots reality. And I see just about zero evidence for that. I see just about zero evidence that that is the case. Because when you look at... If you were to do a demographic analysis of Twitter, for example, and we know this because I think Twitter did it itself, Mm -hmm, you would find that it's wildly disproportionate. It's, It's unrepresentative. It's not a representative thing. Whereas the task of the journalist was actually... To be in touch with something that was far more real and grounded and on the ground rather than something that is in the cloud, as it were. And so, as I work my way through this, and I obviously I'm interested in your more formulated thoughts and I can bounce off those, but as I work my way through this, I walk away seeing no case for it. I see whatever benefit might have arisen from social media for the journalist and via the journalist for the audience who so I'm going to call you know, a democratic audience in our case, mm. and I see that as an important element in the functioning and the purpose of journalism, whatever benefit there is becomes drastically outweighed by the celebrification of journalists and journalism, by the imperative that, I guess, the accretions of social media use that is inevitable for the journalist, where they end up developing not an audience but followers mm-hmm. who they then have to serve which means they constantly have to be producing content that works in the form of a tweet or whatever social media platform you're talking about, and thereby has the effect of very loose journalistic practice taking place that lowers the standard and the meaning of journalism and an inevitable blurring of the lines of the journalistic conduct or the conduct of journalists, shall I say, on a place like social media and the more formal output that they have on broadcast media or in print media or, wow. or whatever. So, so much is being distorted in that, that I can't see this as a net positive. Now, I will, for the sake of full disclosure or for you know, declaring my bias, I am a social media fundamentalist, I think. I don't see that it's net benefit or that it has a net positive benefit on just about anything. Mm-hmm. So, that tends to be my starting position. But even if you allow for my bias there, I think the case with respect to journalism is formidable. Like, it's really formidable. And although I don't have any pretensions that the genie can be put back in the bottle, I do think it's something that journalists need to start thinking about really, really seriously. Not, should I get off social media because of the impact it's having on my mental health or it's exhausting or whatever, but do I actually, when I really stop and think about it, have a professional obligation not to be on it at all? Hmm.
2: I love this on so many Uh, different levels. Have I I, gone too fast? No, well, sorry. No, you haven't. That's not to say that I agree with everything that you said. I've got so many things to say. I'm just going to have to be incredibly circumspect and just say a couple of them. Uh, The first thing that I do need to say is that, I mean, part of my employment with the ABC is that I'm bound by certain journalistic principles and certain editorial policies of the ABC. But I myself am not a journalist, either by practice or by training or even necessarily by disposition. My role in the ABC Uh, has been as a broadcaster and as an opinion editor. You could say that as a broadcaster, I do have certain kind of journalistic whatever, Uh, but I, I, I should say that as an opinion editor, I found Twitter very valuable simply at the level of hearing voices that I would not ordinarily have heard and the cultivation of the possibility of new talent, of new writers, Uh, that wouldn't ordinarily get a foot in the door of someplace like the ABC or the Fairfax Press or whatever else. So uh, I would say that simply at the level of hearing voices, being being struck with a degree of curiosity at something that I thought was particularly well-framed or well-phrased, maybe a little insight that I really wanted to develop, I wanted someone to develop into something else, I found that, the discovery of new voices, very, very useful. Now that That leads to me to a second slightly countervailing principle for me. One of the things that social media does do and where I think it's important maybe at the level of symbolism, if not at the level of substance, is that a core democratic principle, I would take it as the core democratic principle, is that of answerability, that in a very radical way, we are each... I say this as a matter of moral conviction and as a matter of democratic practice, we are each answerable to one another. Even if elections, for instance, are relatively ineffective or don't necessarily produce always the best or the wisest results, the symbolic importance of elections is that they reinforce the ritual, the importance, the moral significance of answerability. And the opposite of answerability is majesty, where a person has no need, no obligation To answer to anybody else. And so, even if it's simply at the level of symbolism, the idea that someone who appears on television, someone who's behind the microphone on a podcast, someone who appears in print, is answerable or can be spoken to by notionally anybody can be held to account in ways that go beyond, say, letters to the editor or – what did you describe it? You know, pigeon mail or, or whatever. You know, that, <laughs> that I think – there's a significance to that that I really do believe is important. The reinforcement of the ritual, the moral
1: significance of answerability.
2: Now, that leads but me it's – But a, it's a debauched ritual though. It is. It... And
1: it leads to a perverse outcome. Of course. I, would and, I actually and, think it leads to unaccountability.
2: Uh, it can. But I think that's something that needs to be argued rather than merely asserted. Now, just quickly, this leads me then to the third point, which is to some extent what you're saying is a bit anti-historical or ahistorical because – The idea of journalist as celebrity, that really does date back to 1973, 1974, and the after effect, the aftermath of Watergate reporting. I mean,
1: you really did have – Yeah, I'm prepared to accept that, but I'm not prepared to say that that's a good development.
2: No, I don't think it's a good development either. And in fact, you have people at the time – who argued really, really strongly against it. You have wonderful media historians like Michael Shudson who have pushed back considerably about the cult of journalistic celebrity, about the idea of journalists themselves having brands, having opinions that can be reified, commodified, and therefore produce uh, a new form of audience or a new type of audience buy-in. I think all of those things themselves are debauched. Uh, journalistic practices, but I think, Waleed, if you combine that older 50-year-old development of the journalist as celebrity with a very new development, which I think can only be referred to as the tabloidization of the news, uh, the news as sensation, the news as something that needs to be tarted up in order for it to be, to catch online, to go viral, If you then couple that with the importance of journalists not just as reporters, not just as people who are custodians of a kind of public trust and for whom objectivity isn't just a virtue but an important way of safeguarding a certain democratic practice. I think you combine journalistic celebrity with the tabloidization of the news and this kind of lust after, the panting after, the possibility of virality. I think you're right. That really does create genuine problems because I don't see how you can hold together the journalist as celebrity with the tabloidization of the news and the quest for virality. I don't see how that doesn't distort editorial practices and protocols. The fact, for instance, that most media organizations – and I include the ABC in this – circulates among its own staff, audience figures, traffic numbers – Uh, online engagement, social media take-up, these cannot help but distort editorial judgments. (laughs) The the, the sense of value of what is worth pursuing versus what can be left because there's going to be no public or social media buy-in.
1: But I I feel like you're raising an even bigger question here. You're, You're now really talking about should media content be put on social media? Yeah. Or at the very least, should the views attached to media content on social media be tabulated or recognized or disseminated.
2: Or, or even while well, they just simply reinstating the firewall that used to exist between the people yes. whose responsibility it was to look after audiences and advertising and the people who are producing the content. I mean, that firewall we, was right. there for a really, really good reason. And I, I, I right. don't, and I don't and see how it is that we yeah.
1: Especially in news, right? Yeah, absolutely. So was it true that in America originally you couldn't broadcast ads during a news bulletin? Was that originally true? No.
2: Well, it, it, it depends how how far back
1: you... The, the, the origin of television in America. Anyway, maybe it was just an Aaron Sorkin thing that he made up for the newsroom. But I think <laughs> I think that was the case, right? That, that you have... The the idea of the tax for having a television license was That's you right. would have to devote an hour of it You've to been watching the, the newsroom, Wally.
2: You've been watching the newsroom.
1: Oh, <laughs> mate, that was years and years ago. <laughs> I we could have done it. that show a long time ago. Yeah, before. we could. But... Um, But I think that was the idea, right? And there weren't ads during that time because you didn't want news coverage being corrupted by those commercial imperatives. That was at least the theory. Now, that's long gone um, as an imperative, but you can see the idea of it there. I think, though, I I agree with what you said there. I just want to highlight that when I'm talking about journalists being on social media, we're talking about something that is even radically more promiscuous than that because there is no filter at all. Hmm. Right. It's direct. So even with the celebrity journalist, and I'm happy to join your lament in that development, but even with the celebrity journalist, they would have to work their way through an editor or something. Yes, right? that's right. And it may well be that they had a level of heft that they could throw around that did distort the editorial process or whatever, but at least they had to get through something. What worries me more is the transformation of the journalist into a celebrity conveyor of product or content for a privately cultivated set of subscribers yeah. without any kind of editorial firewall at all other than their own judgment, a judgment that cannot help but be affected by the sort of whims of – well, not whims. It cannot help but be affected by the experience of going through that process of becoming a celebrity, even if it's a kind of more micro version of that. And So I think that even though you want to chart that historic development, and I think that's a valuable contribution to make, I don't want to understate that we are dealing with, I think, a paradigm shift, really, in the way that journalists are thinking of themselves and will necessarily behave. That there is something qualitatively different about this particular shift, even if you want to say that there were kind of parallels in recent journalistic
2: history. Yeah. And, and, and look, well, like, let me just register my wholehearted agreement with that, and that was actually the fourth point that I was going to make. Right. That, that it strikes me, and, and look, there have undoubtedly been instances in the past where poor editorial judgment has dissuaded fine journalists from pursuing stories that were absolutely in the public interest for a variety of reasons, ranging from mm. jadedness, cynicism, commercial interest, whatever. But by and large, and I would say overwhelmingly, It is the case that the vocation that tends to being an editor is a high moral vocation indeed. And that far from editorial restraint being simply uh, a noose or a harness around free expression, editorial restraint when journalists themselves are such vital agents within the cultivation of the conditions of democratic life – Editorial restraint, the ability to have another voice that checks what it is that you most immediately or instinctively want to say, that is a precious, precious thing indeed. And it seems to me that one of the losses for many media organizations has been the loss of editorial wisdom, of longstanding editorial experience. Uh, And I think democracy as a whole, and I think you're right, the journalistic vocation is the worst for it. We might be
1: getting into a discussion about business models very soon. This is The Mind Field. You can listen to the show on RN, uh, which you may be doing right now, in which case thank you very much. But you can also catch the show anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield as a podcast, and we should just turn up in your feed every week.
2: This is really exciting for me. Uh, we have on the show someone who I've worshipped for years, Margaret Simons is a journalist, a writer, an academic. Her output and her range of interests is astonishing to me. So just go to her website and have a look. She's the author of biographies of both Penny Wong and Carrie Stokes. She's done a wonderful quarterly essay on the Murray-Darling Basin. If you ever needed a restoration of faith in the good, the democratic service that journalism does, I would urge you to go and read Margaret's reporting concerning the public housing lockdown in Melbourne last year in The Guardian. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield.
0: Uh, I'm
2: overwhelmed. Thank you. No, no, no don't, don't be overwhelmed. I'm just, we're grateful. We're very, very grateful. So, Margaret, your career, both as a journalist and as a journalism academic,
0: yep.
2: has spanned the initial enthusiasm concerning the ways in which social media can reinvigorate the practice of journalism, and even feed into things like citizen journalism. But you've also gone through a period of chastening about what social media can and cannot do and the kind of limits that someone who is a journalist ought to maybe self-impose, even if you think that the external imposition of limits is problematic. I I don't want to ask you anything. You've heard what Waleed and I have said. Why don't you just take it up and you take us where you want us to go?
0: Okay, well, a few points, I guess. I mean, I think some of what Waleed is saying is taking the worst of what happens in social media and talking about that as though that was the whole lot. And, you know, one example of that is we're talking about celebrity journalists. Now, I would agree that I don't think journalists should be celebrities if by celebrity people who are famous for being famous. But I do think journalists are a kind of public figure, um, and some of them are public intellectuals. And that is an important distinction because we expect public figures to be accountable and to be rightly held to account in ways. So, you know, not every journalist, like if you've got, say, a Laura Tingle or a, a Lee Sales, or I would like to think myself on social media, they're not celebrities just because they have social media followings which are attached to them as an individual, but they are a kind of public figure. And I think that's a really important distinction, which I think Walid is glossing over a little bit there.
2: Can I, sorry, Margaret, just before you go any further, can I just pick you up just on one slight sub-point to that, though? Just simply so I'm sure that that I'm completely clear. We're, We're not just talking about public intellectuals as celebrities or celebrities as public intellectuals. Part of being a public intellectual on a social media platform seems to lend itself towards that public intellectual being associated with a particular brand of thinking or say – let's even put it really cynically and say a brand of moral conviction. When you subscribe to this public intellectual – you kind of know what it is they're going to say, and that's the reason this public intellectual is going to get an invite onto Q&A. Whereas being a genuine public intellectual should mean an ability to change one's mind, an ability, yes, you're right, to be held to account, and the ability to, say, reverse one's position without losing your brand in the process.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, but I don't – I mean, you know, the other, the other point I would pick you two up on, I think, is you're talking about social media as though it is one thing. And it isn't. It's many, many different things. You know, I wrote a piece The Engine recently about QAnon and conspiracy theorists and discovered, you know, a whole part of social media that I was previously unaware of um, and pretty toxic too. But that's not the whole of social media. You know, you can't sort of – social media is a publishing or broadcasting platform, and it is used for many different things. Now, it has certain affordances, certainly, Uh, which push you in certain ways. I'm not a technological determinist, so I'm not going to say it determines you in certain ways, but it pushes you in certain ways. And I do think it is very important that journalists begin to think very seriously about how they use it and what their responsibilities are on the medium. And I've written about that. I don't think we've done that thinking yet, and we need to quite urgently, I think. But, you know, we live in a world, for better or worse, where, according to some research by University of Canberra, a quarter of Australians primarily get their news from social media, and that's not counting the others who would get some of their news from social media, right? Um, YouTube is the leading channel at the moment. Facebook is fading as a channel for news. Twitter is very niche, as Waleed suggested. It's not representative. Now, you know, if journalists don't participate there and participate with the traditional journalistic virtues, I would suggest, modified for The Times, then you're leaving it to the crazies and the toxics. You know, I think journalists, just like with any other medium, need to participate. But just like talkback radio, like the invention of television, like the invention of the printing press, the technology does have certain affordances which push you in certain ways. But people use the printing press for all sorts of things. That's not the fault of the printing press, it's the way in which we use it. So, you know, I. I sort of push back a little bit against taking the worst of what social media can do and saying that is social media. For example, you mentioned my reporting on the public housing lockdowns in Melbourne. Now, I wrote fairly traditional pieces for The Guardian on that, which, of course, is online and largely distributed through social media. But I also, and there was no great planning to this, I just started doing it and then kept doing it, I also reported you know, minute by minute, really, on Twitter. And I originally intended that for the local community. I live in Flemington. We're close to the public housing estate and know many of the people there. They're my neighbours. My kids went to school with many of the kids and so on. And, you know, I reported factually very little opinion. I took questions from people who were actually locked down in the flats as well as from the wider Flemington community. I gained a lot of followers, some of whom I now know. With the bureaucrats inside the various departments that were trying to implement that awful time, that dark time in Melbourne's history. Now, I was absolutely participating on social media as a journalist. I gained an audience different from that that I was reporting, that I was getting through The Guardian. I'm sure there was some overlap, but not much, I suspect. And, um, you know, how is that bad? How is that bad? I, I really just don't see what the problem is with that. It's another no, platform. Which I had so, in my hand. You know, the reason I used it is it was a fast-developing situation. I was on the ground and I had that reporting platform in my hand in a way that, you know, I had no other platform available to me in that way.
1: So that is not bad. I So I, I don't want my argument to be there are no benefits. I'm just saying, I'm talking about well, it the it sounds net.
0: awfully close to that, Waleed, frankly. I mean, <laughs> taking the most toxic and negative examples and saying that is social media. And I just think that's erecting a straw man or straw woman.
1: Yeah, okay. I, no, I, I think that misrepresents my argument. What I've said is I'm making an unbalanced calculation, right? So I, I hear these arguments about the benefits of social media all the time. I'm trying to make an aggregated assessment about what the effect is on journalism and what the effect is on, by extension, democracy. And so in aggregate... I think that we are seeing the standard of journalism lowered. And this is this is where it gets into tricky territory because I, in some cases the, most, the easiest way for me to make my case would be to cite specific individual examples and I don't really want to do that because I don't want to end up picking fights with individuals and turning this into some kind of interrogation of their character. But let's just say we are seeing, and I suspect you would agree with this because I'm sure I've, actually, I've read you write this, we are seeing very well-credentialed journalists at very respectable institutions commit all kinds of journalistic faux pas on very sensitive issues that they would never have committed.
0: I agree, if and that's why social I state, media
1: were not part of the equation.
0: That's why I agree that we need, as a profession, to seriously think through how we use social media and what are, you know, how the traditional virtues of the newsroom, if you like, how they translate to social media, totally agree with you there. And that thinking hasn't been done. I think we're actually in the process of doing it. We've seen movement at the BBC and the ABC and and other institutions on this just in the last few months. So, you know, I think we're in that process now. So I totally agree with you there. But if journalists vacate the field when a quarter of the population is getting their news mainly from social media, what are we doing? How does that sure, reflect your journalism? But th- that, is,
1: that is also a circular argument, right? Because part of the reason that a quarter of people are getting their news from social media is that news organisations are flooding social media and journalists are flooding social media with themselves, right? So now I agree we can't unscramble the egg and I'm not suggesting that that were possible. So I understand that the position I'm putting is – radically impractical, but I'm talking about it really as a question of a journalistic ethic. And while I understand the point you're making that says, look, it's just a plat, like, you know, it can be used for all kinds of things. I'm more interested in the affordances that you've identified without going into. And I guess what I'm pointing at is that the affordances of social media are so powerful and so intoxicating that in some, I don't think you can regulate your way through them. I don't think you can say that journalists will somehow resist the gravitational pull towards a lowering of journalistic standards because we've now thought through how this is best used. And to point to earlier forms of technology like television, I don't think weaken my point. In fact, they might strengthen it. Because I would argue you could have made the same argument about television and you probably would have been right Hmm. Now, none of that is to say, and I think what you've seen in television news and the impact of television news on other forms of media, right? So the way that television affected newspapers and all of that, I think that's deleterious.
0: I I don't think we
1: can go backwards. I agree. I'm not saying hmm. that that's practical, but I think it's an important observation to make. And so for the journalists sitting here now, I don't think we're asking something fully human of them to say that we can expect journalists or enough journalists to engage with this thing, certainly not in their personal capacities, and walk away in a way that won't infect journalism such that it does serious damage to the vocation overall?
0: Well, you know, I would agree with much of what you said, but would argue that that actually imposes an extra moral and ethical responsibility to think these issues through and to participate. You're right, the same arguments are made about television and you're right, they're probably largely true. same arguments are certainly made about talkback radio and probably true. I mean, it depends where you look and what you look at. You can also find, of course, excellent journalism on all those platforms. Um, but to simply say, oh, you know, I don't like some of what's going on, I don't like the pressures that this medium imposes, therefore I'm not going to participate, I think abandons a moral responsibility. I'm not saying you have to participate while lead as an individual, that, that that is very much up to you. But as a profession, I think we need to think through what our role is on this new medium. And the affordances of the medium, we've sort of referred to them without saying what they are. I mean, the most important one is that anybody with an internet connection can participate. And that is kind of wonderful, and that was referred to in the earlier conversation, and also terrible. You know, it's the same thing. Voices that previously could not be heard can now be heard and amplified. That's the wonderful thing about it, and it's also the awful thing about it and the frightening thing about it. But if journalists simply say, well, we kind of don't like that, we want to retain our privileged access to the means of publication and broadcast, and therefore we're not going to participate in this medium, what are we doing? I mean, 10% no, of people accept use Facebook. I mean, it's just not good enough as a profession to say it's all a bit filthy and a bit rugged. We're not going to get involved.
1: No, but again, I think that's not the argument. So, for example, if, you, if you're if you saying, well, it, it amplifies voices that aren't, aren't otherwise heard, I would be interested in really interrogating those voices that aren't otherwise heard. Because I think what you will probably find is that they actually – Ten, apart from very specific circumstances you identify, for example, like um, the lockdown in the Housing Commission towers or things like that, but if you, certainly if you're talking about commentary, you're talking about angles on particular major news developments, I would say that there's a certain privilege to those voices that tends to be overwhelmingly to do with certain kinds of education, right? The task of the journalist, it seems to me, it's not that they have privileged access to the means of publication. It's that their job, their whole vocation is to unearth the voices at the grassroots level. And so there's a very clear argument for how journalism as a as a job, as a profession, if it is a profession, is meant to respond to that question of all this diversity in society and the finding of, mm. quote unquote, real voices. My big concern with this... With the social media, what I would say the apologia of, for social media along those lines is that it's not actually unearthing quote-unquote real voices. It's unearthing a certain kind of voice that is being artificially mapped onto being representative. So I, th- I wonder if it actually displaces the real task of journalism because what you get is journalists now feeling that they have this tool that empowers them to find all these things. They're swimming in a far narrower, shallower pool than they imagine.
0: Well, you know, I I agree with you that social media, any particular channel, any particular following is not representative. And I don't know that anybody claims that it is, Waleed. I think that's kind of, you know, again, a bit of a straw person. My Twitter following is my Twitter following. It's made up of people who presumably want to be connected with what I do, like what I do. You'd have to ask them. (laughs) And it's very different from somebody else's Twitter following. And Twitter is very different from Facebook or from YouTube or from TikTok. Also, of course, news and journalism isn't the only thing that social media is used for. You know, TikTok is barely used for news at all, although that is changing quite rapidly. Um, A few less than a year ago, Facebook was dominant. It's now the University of Canberra research tells us declining as a source of news and YouTube is climbing. Um, So, you know, it's not one thing. But, yeah, I agree with you. It's not representative. I don't know that anybody claims that it is, Uh, but that doesn't mean it's nothing. And it is an audience. It's a segment of the audience which chooses to follow, in my case, myself as a journalist, in much the same way you might subscribe to a certain publication because you like the things that connect you to. You like the content you get from that. Of course, it's free, which means I don't earn anything from it. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, you know, I regard my activity on Twitter as sort of part of a portfolio of activities as a freelancer and as an academic. I do get commissions out of it sometimes. I certainly get contacts out of it. And in terms of the voices, yes, absolutely. I have been able to connect to people through social media, and I primarily use Twitter, that's a personal preference, through social media that I would not have found otherwise. I think in terms of the voices that get amplified, again, it depends where you look. You know, you can look in traditional journalism and there'd be people who've entered into it, like um, oh, the Guardian columnist... Um, Grogs gamut, you know, who was... Yeah, Greg fixer. Jericho. Yep. Yeah, Greg Jericho, sorry, who I think is, you know, a useful addition to journalism, who made his way into journalism entirely through his social media activity. And there are other examples. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, Pete Evans, who has morphed from... Um, he's not a journalist, he claims well, yeah, to be.
1: That's...
0: But, you know, he has morphed from being a celebrity chef into, you know, one of the leading figures in the sort of QAnon constellation in Australia. I say the the terrifying thing and the potential of the medium the affordances of the medium is that voices that couldn't previously be heard are now being heard and yes I'm not don't leap to that from saying oh but they're not representative I didn't claim they were I don't think anybody does claim they are but they are out there and it does happen and it's both hugely positive including in holding journalism to account and negative in terms of standards in journalism I'd agree with you that you know, as a broad general statement across the board, they've dropped. But social media, while it's one pressure, is not the reason for that. The main reason for that is the collapse of the business model.
1: Mm, that but- is definitely true. Um, it is time for me to shut up, but I do need to say this is the minefield. Uh, well, it is my name Scott Stevens, is my co-host. And that voice you just heard belongs to Margaret Simons, who's a journalist, a writer and an academic. She used to be the director of the Centre for Advanced Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Today, she's with us. <music>
2: Look, this is, this is wonderful. Can I just hold up two very brief concerns? One, I mean, Margaret, you're saying that, well, does anybody really think that social media is representative? I think there is something, I can't quite find the right term for it, but I think the best way of thinking about it is almost the kind of phenomenology of representation. So, for instance, one of the things that my kids have gone through uh, my wife and I have tried to keep them off Instagram for as long as humanly possible. And something we've tried to explain to them off the back of some of their early experiences with it is, you know, we all know the experience of being talked about behind your back. You, as soon as you hear it, it's a voice you can't forget. And then in the way that many teenagers engage in social media, suddenly it's no longer people saying bad things about you behind your back. But it's then a voice which then implants itself. And there's been lots of research that's been done about the deleterious effect on that self-image, mental health, and so on. It just strikes me as someone who was on Twitter for an extended period of time. It's not representative, but it damn well feels like it sometimes. And you end up beginning to anticipate some of the responses that you're going to get if you publish a particular piece. And I think there's something about the curation of the way in which we receive voices from others and the way that those voices can then end up creating something like a more balanced picture of the kind of content that really does speak to people, that really does mean something to people. So you're right, Margaret, of course you're right that it's not actually representative, but I think there is a way in which it becomes experienced as representative that i think journalists
1: is hegemonic a better word
2: yeah it may well be it just it it ends up being a form of external dominance that you can't quite shake the only other thing that i'd point out and then I'll, i'll shut up for the rest of the show i promise i i don't buy and i've never bought the this is where people are going this is where people are receiving their news therefore newsmakers need to be in the same space I've been far too influenced, I'll confess, by a great 1956 essay by Dwight MacDonald, a great cultural theorist and media critic, where he referred to what he called the problem of homogenization, which is you put wonderful things and terrible things into the same space and wonderful things don't elevate the bad things. The bad things instead bring the terrible things down to their level. He used the example of Life magazine who might print 12 beautiful Renoirs, and they appear alongside a story about a roller skating horse. And the overwhelming impression that you're left with after reading that issue of Time uh, of Life Magazine is not, isn't it wonderful that these Renoirs, these objects of remarkable beauty are available for free or for a small price to everybody, but instead, what talented things that Renoir and that horse, in fact, are. And it does strike me that part of the tabloidization of the news is that it really has brought excellent content down to the same level as stuff that is banal, trivial, uh, overtly deceptive, or blatantly manufactured. And it makes really good, important, worthwhile material have to compete within an inescapably debauched environment. I'm just not sure how much good news content redeems those trivialized spaces. And I'm not sure about the compromises that have to be made to put news content there, I'm not sure if that's worth the trade-off.
0: Well, I guess I'd say that dilemma, which I agree and recognise as a dilemma, is not new. You know, you might think about page three girls in tabloid newspapers, (laughs) for example. It's not a new dilemma. Social media creates pressures around the speed with which things happen. In terms of the representativeness of it, I mean, you know, there is research on this. Mm about who predominantly is on Twitter and who predominantly is on Facebook and so on, and very broad brushstroke, Facebook is pretty mainstream. Most people have a Facebook account. same is not certainly not true of Twitter, and all of this is changing quite quickly. But just because most people are on Facebook doesn't mean most people get their news from Facebook. Um, I mean, again, you have to look, and again, the digital platforms algorithms come in here. You know, what does Facebook feed you as compared to me? We won't include Waleed in this because he's not there. But um, (laughs) your feed is probably quite different from mine. And the only people who know, and sometimes I think they don't even know, is Facebook itself. And that was why the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry was so important in terms of allowing news media brands some insights into how their content is being shared and who it's being shared to. But to say because Facebook might, or YouTube, for example, might include some ridiculously noxious or trivial video, therefore the person watching some terrific piece of journalism that originated with Four Corners is, you know, in some way demeaned. I mean, it's just not real, you know, because the Four Corners watcher probably hasn't seen the trivial piece because the algorithm will make some calculation about what they're interested in. And, you know, that's dangerous as well. It means that a conspiracy theorist will be fed more conspiracy theories. So it is dangerous. Yeah, not of course. So, I'm not yeah. trying to be pollyanna about this, but the fact that both of those things are on that platform doesn't in a real sense mean that any subset of the audience is viewing both of those things. It doesn't work that way.
1: Hmm. I, I think, though, what I take from what Scott said is not so much the example, it's the principle, which is that, the good is very rarely elevated. That the yeah, downward that's true, true force generally. Yeah, that might be right. So I I don't know why. Like, I'm not sure that's an argument for the embrace <laughs> of this, though. Is what I, is what I'm saying, right? Like, if if I'm going to make an aggregate assessment of the impact on journalism, then it it seems inevitable that that aggregate assessment would have to be negative, if we if we accept that principle, and it seems like we all do then that will necessarily be the outcome.
0: Well, I'm not sure they do accept it in those fairly simple and broad terms, Walid. I think it's such a various pitch. Um, I mean, there's been some research um, by, I think it's Bill Dutton out of the Oxford University on what he calls the fifth estate, which is networks in social media holding the fourth estate, journalism, to account in a way that wasn't previously possible. But I think it's largely a positive development that journalists are accountable to their audience in a different kind of way. So, you know, but I'm well, sure like to... where it's negative as well. Well,
1: yeah, I'm, obviously. And look, to some extent, I'm, I'm happy to concede that you've persuaded me to a degree. Like there is there's a certain overstatement, like a flattening to my argument that deserves, I think, to be, uh, I don't know, made more granular or made more three-dimensional. So, I, yeah, I accept that. I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of the elements that you're pointing to as positives here. So the idea of accountability, well, I have a concern actually with the accountability because I think when you take in Scott's observation of the sort of, I don't know, what do you call it? I called it the hegemony, whatever he wanted to call it, the sort of feeling of representativeness of social media and the crude mechanisms of accountability that are there, the kind of injustice that is done in a lot of those mechanisms of accountability I'm just not sure that that's a development that I would celebrate on the basis well, think, that there are a few things that are being picked up here and there. Do you know what I mean? I think there are far better ways to do the accountability process in journalism than this. Well, I,
0: would, I agree with your point, but I would put that firmly under the heading of this is one of the reasons why it's urgent for journalists to begin to develop a better way of thinking and understanding what social media is because that appearance of being representative you know, I don't think it's representative at all. I think it's a particular niche. My Twitter following is a particular niche audience. I think most journalists, as they sat down and thought about it, would quickly come to that realisation. But, yes, when you're in the middle of a Twitter storm, um, mm. you can forget that. And that's one of the things that journalists really need to think through and, in a sense, get educated about what social media is and what it isn't, what they're following is and what it isn't. Um, and I agree with you that that work's not being done. And, you know, I think you and I both know who we're talking about when we say that well-credentialed journalists on important platforms have been reckless in their social media presence. And I've written about that, and I think that is regrettable and dangerous and another sign that we really need to have this professional conversation about what the traditional journalistic virtues are and how they translate to participation on social media. I mean, you can't be a robot on social media. I think you do have to be a bit interactive and conversational but you can do that, in my view, and this is what I try to do, without dropping the virtues of journalism of integrity. And I think I that's might, really the we need to have.
1: I might be talking about more people than you, Margaret, but yes, I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, I, just, I guess does our disagreement, we'll just wrap up on this, but d- does our disagreement then boil down to you have faith that that process of thinking through what it means can yield something productive? And I think the gravitational forces of social media are so powerful that that ultimately isn't going to help save journalistic practice. Is that ultimately our disagreement?
0: Yeah, I think think you said it, yes, that, but also I think you said it yourself earlier on when you said you're flattening it out, you're referring to celebrity to include, you know, people who I would describe as public figures or public intellectuals. And you're saying, because this happens here on social media, that means it demeans everything else that's happening on social media. When in fact, you know, they're like it's like they're happening in different countries. The same people never see them. So I would agree with what you said earlier about your argument. You're flattening it out a bit. You're you're erecting a few straw figures and knocking them down. And I no, think I didn't. It, I didn't
1: say straw figures. I'm not copying to that no, because yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 also because I'm not just talking about the kinds of celebrity figures. I'm talking about reporters, actual just reporters who end up taking on a kind of celebrity persona. That That's not as simple as like a, you know, a lease Sales or a, that's a different world. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. identifying a different sort of a niche. Anyway, I would ask for a part two on this, Scott, but I suspect no one would be interested in me continuing to talk to Margaret just about my own personal <laughs> views on this. So I'm maybe sure I should do, do that. Do
2: I'm sure we uh, can Margaret, do that. I would certainly I'm so, listen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so delighted that we actually got finally got to have you on the show. Um, there are a few people I'd rather talk to about this than you. So, In fact, I can't think of anyone, really. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank Even
0: though we disagree here, the,
1: um, the admiration is mutual. The <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Well, now we can have part three. Um, that is it for The my Field for this week. Margaret Simons, journalist, writer and academic, I guess, for this week's show. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC
0: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.